Good morning. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today we'll be reading in Psalm 130. That's page 298 in the Blue Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible and you need one, please feel free to take one. They're our gift to you. That's Psalm 130, page 298. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Thus says God's word. Amen. Father, I pray that you would help us to truly esteem your word this morning. I pray that you would, um, through the working of your spirit, allow it to penetrate our hearts and uh, and change us, uh, make us more into the image of Christ. Lord, I, I pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning. I pray that you would um, make our hearts into a fertile soil to receive your word. Um, Lord, help us to to hear it um, and then to, to truly Put our trust in it, Lord. Put our trust in you and what you've said to us. I pray, Lord, that you would help me um, to communicate clearly this morning your gospel, the glory of your gospel, and help all of us to, to hear it, to receive it, to be changed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can have a seat. It's good to see you all this morning. As always, we are... Continuing our series this morning in the Songs of Ascents with Psalm 130, which Danae just read for us. And these 15 psalms, Psalms 120 through 134, were songs that were sung by the Jewish people as they journeyed up to Mount Zion, up to the temple in Jerusalem. And the people then would engage in corporate worship together. They would sing these songs together as they traveled up together for, for a religious festival to meet with the Lord. And these songs of ascents can be seen as symbolic of the Christian life, symbolic of our, our journey of sanctification, both individually and also corporately. But more than that, they, they help us, they instruct us, they show us how our hearts are to engage with the Lord as we enter into His presence in worship, as we enter into fellowship and communion with Him. And one of the reasons that I love Psalm 130 so much is because it answers for us this important question. How should we, how should you and I today relate to, fellowship with, commune with a holy God? How should you and I today relate to, fellowship with, commune with a a perfect, pure, righteous, holy God? 
Now, on the one hand, the scripture tells me without a doubt that if I have trusted in Christ, if I have been saved by grace through faith, then I am redeemed. My sins have been atoned for. There is, there is no condemnation if I am in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 tells us that. On the other hand, I'm still a sinner all the time. I'm guessing you guys are too. I'm not guessing. I know you guys are. You guys are like me. Um, I, I, I don't do, I can relate to Paul, Romans 7. I don't do the things I want to do. The, th- the things I don't want to do, the things I shouldn't be doing, I, I do. And there's this constant war of my flesh with my spirit. I am, I am painfully aware of how I, on a daily basis, dishonor the Lord and fall short of my calling. So when I come before the Lord, when we come before the Lord, do we come then with groveling? Should we come before the Lord with more of kind of a, a, a casual indifference about our sin? Well, you know, it's, it's paid for by grace. It's, it's not that big a deal anymore. Should we come before the Lord with fear, with apprehension, with trepidation? Or should we come more with confidence? Should we come before the Lord with a sense of being completely and fully worthy? Or with a sense of being unworthy? How must we as sinners, redeemed, absolutely, but as sinners, how do we approach, how do we fellowship with a holy God? That's my question for this morning. And Psalm 130 is broken up into four sets of two verses. And if you're like me, you love that kind of symmetry. It just I, I don't know what it is, but I just... I love that. So we have we have four sets of, of two verses, and I'm going to, to literally look at that this morning like a four-step ladder of, of communion with the Lord. How do we enjoy fellowship and communion with the Lord today? We've got four steps according to Psalm 130. We, we begin with a cry for mercy, followed by confession followed by hopeful waiting, followed by assurance. Cry for help, cry for mercy, confession, hopeful waiting, and assurance. We begin in verse verses 1 and 2. The psalmist says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. The psalmist, from the very beginning, he cries out to the Lord from the depths. Immediately we see that this is, this is a cry for help. This is a cry for mercy. This is something that we can all immediately relate to. Lord, Lord, I need help. Lord, come rescue me. Lord, come have mercy on me. I'm in the depths. The depths conjure up pictures of of the ocean i want you to think about think about the depths of the ocean a place of fear of darkness of uncertainty years ago katie and i had the opportunity to go to cozumel 
And we decided while we were there that we were going to try some snorkeling. And when I say we decided, I mean more that I decided, and I talked her into it. It'll be, it'll be fine, right? No, nothing to be worried about. And so you know, we take off on this boat, um, and, it, and it takes us out into the ocean a little bit. Um, how many of you have seen the movie Finding Nemo? If you have young kids, you, you probably have for sure. So remember in that movie, um, at, at the beginning of the movie, um, you know, Nemo, this little clownfish and his dad, they live on this coral reef, right? And you get to the end of the coral reef, and you have what they call the drop-off, right? You remember that? And the drop-off is essentially just an endless black abyss of ocean. And so we get in the boat, they drop us off, and we jump in the water, we put our masks on, you know, we put our heads under the water, and they have taken us literally to the drop-off. And so you look down, and about, about 20 feet below you is this reef, and then the reef stops, it ends, and you just have this black abyss of ocean, like right underneath you. And if your mind works at all like mine, you're wondering, I wonder what lives down there. Which is, which is not a good thought to have when, when you're swimming. And, and to be quite honest, it, it, was, it was slightly terrifying just to see this black expanse, uh, it, it, having no idea, like, how deep does that go? And wondering what might possibly be down there. It was, it was a little bit terrifying. The depths are a place of darkness, a place of fear, a place of uncertainty. And, and in the scriptures... Um, the, the ocean or the sea typically represents chaos and trouble and a source of evil. The sea was a place of danger. It was unpredictable. That's why in Revelation 21, it says, In the new heavens and the new earth, the sea will be no more. Right? You remember that? And now, I, I don't think that John is saying that in the new heavens and the new earth, we will no longer have bodies of water. But certainly what he's saying is that there will be no, no more trouble. There will be no more chaos. There will be no more evil. The, the depths are a place of trouble. The depths also represent a distance from God, an alienation from God, being far from him. I think of the story of Jonah in the belly of the fish. And Jonah, in the depths, in a similar way, he, he cries out to the Lord, Lord, help me, Lord, have mercy on me, Lord, save me. And all throughout the Psalms, we see a theme of crying to the Lord for help. Psalm 44, 26, rise up, come to our help. Psalm 51, 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Psalm 54, 1, O God, save me by your name. And vindicate me by your might. Psalm 59, 1. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. All throughout the Psalms, the psalmists cry out to the Lord. They cry out for mercy for different reasons. They cry out for help. They cry out for mercy. They cry out for deliverance from trouble. They cry out for deliverance from suffering. Deliverance from enemies. But here in Psalm 30, it's important to see the author cries out for mercy because of his sin. The depths from which he cries out represent the darkness, the distance, the trouble 
created by his own sin. Think of Isaiah 6. Isaiah has seen his, his vision of the Lord seated on the throne. Isaiah cries out, woe is me. Woe is me. I am, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. I, I think of Paul in Romans 7, which I mentioned earlier. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Church, if we would know, if we would truly know the glory of Christ and the glory of his gospel, we must understand the vileness, the offensiveness, the depth, and the weight of our own sin. I believe that that one of the chief endeavors of Satan is to, number one, convince us that our sin is too great to be forgiven. And we'll talk about we'll talk about that more a little bit later. But but secondly, I think one of Satan's chiefest endeavors is to convince us that our sin is not that big of a deal. Right? Yeah, you know, I I know I do a little of this and I do a little of that, and maybe I shouldn't, but it's not that big a deal. You know? Uh, I think of try to get this story right. I wasn't planning on sharing this, but it just popped into my head. Um I remember seeing something on social media and um a pastor um a pastor friend, not not Pastor Mark, but a pastor friend that I know, he posted something on on social media that said something like, um, "Watching Game of Thrones is probably not helpful for your relationship with Jesus." There's something like that. That's maybe not be that may not be verbatim, but it said something like that. And and someone uh, someone replied. To, I don't know if this was a member of his church or just a friend, but someone replied to him. You're not wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway, right? And and that's that's what I'm talking about. Kind of a kind of a casual, you know, you know. I, I know some of this stuff is probably wrong, but it's it's not really a big deal. And I'm going to do it anyway. And I'm going to enjoy it in any way. And you know, I, I'm I'm covered by grace. You know, I, I think that's behind the sentiment uh, of people who say, right? We hear this all the time. God loves you just the way you are, right? Have you ever heard that? God loves you just the way you are. Right. And the implication of that statement is you don't really need to change. And holiness is not really that important because God loves you exactly how you are. So don't really worry about how you live. Satan wants to convince us that our sin is not that big of a deal, not that offensive. But the psalmist has no such illusion. He recognizes his immense need for the mercy of God. And he cries out from the depths of despair, God, help me. God, have mercy on me. How do we as sinners approach a holy God? How do we enjoy fellowship with a holy God? Surely the first step is recognizing the weight of our sin and our desperate need for the mercy of God. Psalmist continues, verses verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Our Our next step, our second step on 
on this, this ladder of communion with the Lord is an acknowledgement and a confession of our sin. The writer of the song continues with a rhetorical question. God, if you kept a record of our sins, who could stand? Who could come into your presence? Who could enjoy fellowship with you? Now, I want you to imagine for a moment what it would look like if God literally wrote down in a book every sin that you ever committed. Not not your sinful actions, but every sinful thought, every sinful motivation. How big would that book have to be? Mine, mine would be pretty big, right? I have this picture of Jesus carrying this massive book around, being like, yeah, this is from last week, buddy. Right? I, I mean, seriously, though, if, if God truly kept a record of our sin, who could stand before him? And the answer, of course, is not a single one of us. Not a single one of us could stand. If, if you and I stood before our holy God based on our own merit, we would be absolutely crushed by our own guilt. Isaiah 64, 6 says, All of us, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. That's from the NIV. Now, Isaiah is not talking about righteous acts done by the saints, the people of God, unto the glory of God. I believe that God is truly, truly blessed. I believe that God is truly pleased with the righteous acts of his people. But if we for a second think that we can in any way merit our right standing before the Lord, if we think for, for just a second that we can in any way contribute to our justification, then those works are nothing but filthy rags in the eyes of the Lord. The psalmist is saying that if God kept a record of our sin, we would all, every one of us, stand condemned. Every one of us. But then he goes on to say, in the same breath, but with you, but with God, there is forgiveness. Thank you, God, that the psalm doesn't end at that point. With God, there is forgiveness. This echoes what David says in Psalm 103. It says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. Aren't you glad? For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. Hebrews 8, verse 12, which is quoting Jeremiah 31, says, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. If we have trusted in Christ, then he remembers our sins no more. He forgets them. 
He casts them away. Now, that doesn't mean that God has some kind of divine amnesia where he literally can't remember things that have happened in the past, right? But it means that when he forgives, he chooses to no longer dwell on our sins. It means that he won't dredge them up in the future to hold against his people. It means that when you come to Jesus for mercy and for grace, he's not going to say, well, well, hey, what about that thing that happened a couple of months ago? What about that? What about that unbelief that you had? See, that really offended me, and I'm not sure I want to forgive you anymore. That's not the heart of Christ towards his people. Now, we, you and I, we do that all the time, right? We do that all the time. Your spouse does something to hurt you, and like immediately in your mind or maybe verbally, verbally you're like, well, what about nine years ago when you forgot my birthday or you did this or you did that, right? That might be a mild exaggeration, but, but we do that. We hold on to past offenses in case we need them for ammunition in the future. Ouch. I know I've done that, right? Uh, you hurt me, and I, I'm just going to store that away because I might need that someday, right? When you're ticked off at me, I'm going to remind you of what you did. Oftentimes we do it to the people that we love the most that are closest to us. But Jesus, thank the Lord, does not treat his people that way. Through the cross, he takes the offenses that we have committed against him and he casts them away as far as the east is from the west. And he chooses not to remember them. This is the sweet forgiveness that Christians receive from the Lord. And and the right response, the only response to that can be worship. Right? Worship. With with God there is forgiveness that he might be feared. Fear of the Lord and worship are the same thing. Now, hearing that phrase, the fear of the Lord, that we're supposed to fear the Lord, that's a phrase used all throughout Scripture. And that, that can sound kind of strange and negative to our ears today. We think, well, well wait a minute, I thought the Scripture says that, that perfect love casts out fear. Why? Why is the Scripture telling me to fear the Lord? But the fear of the Lord simply means to be in awe of the Lord, to, to reverence the Lord, to recognize His greatness, His beauty, His majesty, His glory, His worth, and to stand in awe of Him and to tremble in awe before our great and awesome God. Worship is not about finding or somehow stirring up an emotional experience that we're so prone to do in the church today. That's church, that's idolatry. If if we require, you know, a, a really great band in a in a in a fancy light show and in a great experience, a big production to worship the Lord, then we are worshiping something entirely different than Jesus Christ. That's not what worship is. It's not what it's about. But worship is about seeing the beauty, the majesty, the glory of Christ primarily through his word and then responding 
in awe and adoration of who the Word tells us that He is. So in approaching the Lord, we, we begin, we, we come with a cry for help, a cry for mercy, with a, a recognition of our sin, followed by confession of our sin. And, and the third step, then, is to wait, hopefully, for the word of forgiveness that the Lord has promised. And, and to wait, hopefully, for the Lord to deliver us from the depths. Verse 5 and 6, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Now, a watchman was someone who would keep watch over a city from the city wall or, or a tower or, or some vantage point where he had a view of the surroundings, and he would keep watch through the night to protect the city from any kind of sudden attack that might happen in the night. And he would keep watch until the morning, until the sun came up. And so he would wait hopefully and expectantly for the rising, the coming up of the sun. And no matter how harrowing the night, no matter how difficult the night, the watchman always knows that the morning is coming that the sun is going to rise and that the light will chase the darkness away. And this is precisely the hope that the psalmist has. Even in the depths of sin and alienation from God because of sin, even in the darkest night, when we cry to the Lord for mercy and help and forgiveness, His response of forgiveness towards us, his word of forgiveness is as sure as the rising of the sun. Now, I woke up early this morning, and it was still very dark outside, but not for one moment did I fear that maybe the sun's not going to come up this morning, right? The psalmist can confidently wait on the forgiveness and redemption of the Lord because our forgiveness and our redemption are not based on our own merit and our own behavior and our own righteousness. They are, they are based on the work of Christ and the promises of God in his word. That's why we can be utterly confident and wait hopefully for the Lord to forgive and redeem because he has promised that he will do so. That's what we read in Psalm 103. Now, waiting on the Lord to fulfill his promise, waiting on the Lord to answer our cry for mercy, waiting on the Lord to lift us from the depths, it's not always easy, right? How many of you would say that, that you're really, really awesome at waiting for things? I'm, I'm not. I don't think most of us are. But the Christian can wait full of confidence, full of hope, because we're waiting on his word, and his word is always true, always without exception. I, I love what Charles Spurgeon says in reference to Psalm 130 in these verses. He says, waiting, we study the word, believe the word, 
hope in the word and live on the word and all because it is his word, the word of him who never speaks in vain. And I love this last line. Jehovah's word is a firm ground for a waiting soul to rest upon. Don't you love that? I know Pastor Mark loves it. Anything from Spurgeon he loves. Um, I, I love that. Christian, if, if, you are, if you are in a place of, of waiting on the Lord, and, and I know here in Psalm 130 we're speaking specifically about being in the depths of sin, but I think, I think this applies to, to being in the depths of trial and suffering. The Christian can say with full conviction, full assurance that Jehovah's word is a firm ground for a waiting soul to rest upon. And finally, verse 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Our, our final step of communion with the Lord, of fellowship with the Lord, is assurance. One of the most beautiful things about the gospel is that the Christian can live with absolute assurance. Now, every other religion is based on, you know, essentially a, a blind hope that, you know, maybe, may, maybe I've done enough. Hopefully, you know, maybe I've, maybe I've been good enough that I've, I've tipped the scales just enough in my favor, that I'll be accepted. But with Christ, in Christ, there is assurance. And what he has promised will come to pass. That's why in Hebrews 10, the author can exhort us to draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. That's why the Apostle John can write in, in 1 John 5.13, he, he, he says, I write these things to you who believe, right? These promises are for believers. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know, not that you may hope, that you may know. Christians don't merely hope that they have the pardon and forgiveness of the Lord, that they have eternal life. Christians no, we know. The psalmist is so grounded in his assurance that he invites his countrymen, he in, invites his fellow Israelites, all those who have trusted in the Lord, to join him in the hope and the assurance that he has. And then we see here in these final two verses, we see two reasons for the psalmist's assurance and hope. Number one is the steadfast love of God. The second is the plentiful redemption of God. With the Lord, there is steadfast love and plentiful redemption. And these two things, these, these two promises help confront and dismantle two fears that I, I think we oftentimes hold to, maybe subconsciously, but that we oftentimes hold to. The first fear is that God will see my sin and be unwilling to forgive it and to accept me. 
He'll see my sin and he'll be unwilling to forgive and to accept me. But see, God's love, God's covenant love for his people does not fluctuate like ours does, does not change like ours does. And because we've been united to his son, God's love for his people will never falter. It will never waver. It will never ebb. It will never cease. And nothing will be able to separate us from it, Romans 8 tells us. And so even in the depths of sin, even when we cry to the Lord from the depths and misery of our own sin, the believer can have full and absolute assurance in the word of the Lord, which says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's from Lamentations 3. One of the reasons that I love that we're, we're studying uh, the book Gentle and Lowly in our Wednesday night meetings. See, I, I think about my own love for my children. And, and I, I love them unconditionally. They are my children, and I will always love them no matter what they do, right? And as parents, we can relate to that. But sometimes I can get very exasperated with them. Looking at you, Ellie. See, I I grew up a pastor's kid, and I had to sit through sermons where my dad talked about me. And so welcome to the club, Ellie. Um, And uh, and we, as as parents, we can all relate to this, right? Um, You know, when when we tell our kids something and, and they don't do it, and we tell them again, and they don't do it again, and maybe we discipline them, and, and, and they don't do it again, and, and, you know, the 10th time, and it's just kind of like, come, come on, guys, and, and we're exasperated, and we're frustrated, and we're upset, and so that's the way that I am, and so that I, I assume then that God must be that way, right? God must be in heaven, rolling his eyes, totally frustrated and exasperated with me, thinking, come on, and again, really, the same thing, the same sin again, but Christ's heart towards me, towards us. What Jesus says to us, even in the depths of our sin, is my steadfast love never ceases. Never cease. My mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is my faithfulness towards you. Second fear is that God will see our sin and, and that somehow it will just be too much for him to atone for. The fear is that somehow my sin, it's worse than yours. You ever thought that? You look at, look at your neighbors and think, man, they've, they've, they've got it pretty together and I'm such a wreck, right? The fear is that somehow my sin is greater and more offensive to the Lord than my brothers and my sisters. And and to that I would reply with with Revelation 5, verse 9, which uh, Gabe preached on a couple weeks ago. It, It says this, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, speaking of Christ, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Now think about that. 
when when a person says I, my sin is it's too much it's too great if you knew what i'd done you'd know that god couldn't forgive me and i've i've spoken to people who have told me exactly that if 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 you knew what i'd done and i don't think they necessarily realize this but what they're essentially saying is that the blood of christ was not costly enough to atone for my sin. It wasn't enough. Now, church, I know that your sin is great and offensive because my sin is great and offensive. But let me assure you that it is no match for the costliness of the blood of our Savior. And so if, if you have trusted in Christ, again, remember, all of these promises are for believers, for those who have put their faith in Jesus. But if you have trusted in Christ, then you can say with full assurance that his love for you is steadfast, it will never cease, and his redemption for you is plentiful. It's plentiful. When God's grace meets the sin of the elect, his grace wins every time. Every time. So, Back, back to our original question, the very beginning, if, if you remember back that far. How do we, as a sinful people, approach God and enjoy fellowship with God and come into his presence in worship? And I would say, based on Psalm 130, that we come with a cry for mercy, that we confess our sins, that we wait, hopefully, on his word and his promises, and that we live in absolute assurance that he will do what he's promised to do. We live in absolute assurance that we are exactly who he says we are in his word, sons and daughters and heirs with Christ. And we live in full assurance of his forgiveness and his steadfast love and his plentiful redemption. And so I would contend that every time we approach the Lord, every time we come into the Lord's presence, every time we enter into confession, every time we enter into worship, every time we come to him in prayer, we can come with a cry for mercy and with full assurance of that mercy simultaneously. I think that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is telling us. We can cry out to the Lord for mercy and be assured that we will receive and have received his mercy at the same time. And so Christians then, what, what, should, what should our life look like? What should our worship look like? Christians should be the most humble and the most confident people at the same time. Those things should not be mutually exclusive we should be most humble because one time we were in the ultimate depths we were dead in our trespasses and sins we were in need of saving unable in any way to save and help ourselves and even today even even as we enjoy fellowship with Christ, as his redeemed, as his people, we still find ourselves in the depths 
of sin at times. That, that should radically humble us. But we should be most confident because we serve a God who always, without exception, fulfills his promises and his word. And so we can be supremely humble because of who we are and supremely confident because of who Christ is and who we are in Christ. With God, there is forgiveness. With God, there is steadfast love. With God, there is plentiful redemption. So back to our rhetorical question. We'll close with this. Back to our rhetorical question. If God were to mark our iniquities, who could stand? Which of us could stand before him? Which of us could come to his table this morning? And the answer, of course, is none of us. But because there is forgiveness, because there is steadfast love, because there is plentiful redemption, we can all stand in his presence. And we can all, if we have called on the name of the Lord, can come and fellowship and feast at his table this morning. And so as as we come to the Lord, as we come to his table and celebrate communion, I'm going to ask our helpers if, if they would um, come forward to help serve. As Lord's table this morning, we should come with a great sense of our need for mercy. And we should come at the same time with full assurance that we have received that mercy in Christ. As we take in our hands and we think upon the broken body and the spilled blood of Christ, his body, his blood should remind us simultaneously of the seriousness of our sin, but also the costliness, the effectiveness, and the permanence of his sacrifice. Amen? So I want to invite you then, if, if you are a believer, if you have put your trust, put your faith in Christ, I want to invite you to come forward, to partake of these elements, to take them back to your seat. And in a moment, we will take these elements together. Scripture says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take the bread together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take the cup together.
Now, if you would put your hands in a receiving position, I want to read a benediction over you from Hebrews chapter 10. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen.